0: From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is murder and mystery in the last frontier, with your host Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Someone entered Buck Hafine's Fairbanks home on a bitterly cold January night and shot him seven times. His young bride, Verna, discovered his body, and she appeared shocked and confused when she told the Alaska state troopers that she didn't know why anyone would want to murder her husband. Authorities immediately suspected her of the crime, but she had a convincing alibi. Verna Hoffines was on stage performing as an exotic dancer when someone brutally murdered her husband, Buck. This crime and the resulting trial captivated the residents of Fairbanks. The trial included a Perry Mason moment and a violent offender who was not finished terrorizing the residents of Alaska. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier, I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and after a nice vacation, I am back broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. The Wayne Buck Hoffines, 22, and Verna, 23, had been married less than a month at the time of his murder, and they'd only known each other for two months. When Trooper Raleigh Port asked Verna if her husband had any enemies, she said she didn't know much about him or his background. Buck grew up in Idaho, and when he was old enough, he joined the Army. He was now a helicopter mechanic attached to the 568th Transportation Company at Fort Wainwright near Fairbanks. According to Verna, she met Buck at the Gold Rush Saloon, one of the bars where she danced. She said Buck was lonely and didn't like living in Fairbanks and working at Fort Wainwright. He wanted to return to Idaho. Verna said she was also lonely, and she believed she and Buck rushed into marriage because they felt sorry for each other. Verna married Buck on December nineteen 1971. Buck and Verna lived in a trailer duplex apartment on Birch Lane, a secluded wilderness area near the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Buck did not like Verna working as an exotic dancer, but Verna said Buck's army pay did not support the pair and Verna's seven-month-old baby. On the night of his murder, Buck and Verna had argued about her job. According to Verna, she had dinner with her husband shortly after he arrived home at 5.30 p.m. on January twenty-first, 1971. Then she went to her second job, where she worked with an undercover police officer attempting to bust drug dealers at the Flame Room, another Fairbanks bar. It was Verna's night off at the Gold Rush, but Verna said the manager of the Flame Room spotted her and asked if she could fill in later that night for a sick dancer. Verna agreed, but told the manager she needed to run home, check on her son, and let her husband know she planned to work late. Buck was not happy to hear Verna had agreed to dance that night. The temperature sat at minus 40 degrees. Verna planned to drive their truck to the flame room for her shift, but Buck insisted she take a cab. He'd had mechanical problems with the truck and didn't want Verna to get stranded on such a frigid night. Verna said she returned to the bar and stayed there until her shift ended. Then she took a taxi home and arrived at the trailer at approximately 3 a.m. on January 22nd. When she entered her home, she saw her husband on the floor. Blood had pooled around him, and he was dead. Verna ran next door to wake her neighbors and summon help. Neither Verna nor her neighbor had a telephone, so the neighbor drove to another neighbor's house and called the police. The Alaska State Troopers received notification of the murder at 3.12 a.m., and an ambulance was dispatched to the scene at the same time. When the troopers arrived and realized Buck was dead, they canceled the ambulance. The troopers determined that someone had shot Buck Hoffines between six to ten times. Rigor mortis had already set in, indicating he died several hours earlier. The troopers launched a major investigation into the murder of Buck Hoffines, Nine state troopers, including crime scene techs, were assigned to the case. They interviewed the neighbors and wondered why no one had heard the shots. The young couple, who lived on the other side of the trailer duplex, said they could sometimes hear Buck and Verna talking or washing the dishes. How did they not hear a rain of gunfire? It was a cold January night, so the neighbors stayed indoors and most were watching television. Perhaps they thought the gunshots were on TV. Or maybe they heard the shots but did not want to get involved. The troopers initially released a little information about the investigation, but they did divulge that the murder weapon was 22 caliber, and they said Buck was shot between six and ten times. The troopers found the murder scene curious. They saw no sign of forced entry into the trailer, and they found Buck's wallet in his pocket, untouched. According to Verna, the killer took nothing from the trailer. Buck's murder was not a robbery. The troopers asked Verna if she had any jealous ex-boyfriends, but she said she didn't. She did not think her husband had enemies, but she wasn't sure because she didn't know him very well. According to the medical examiner, the killer shot Buck seven times. Five of the shots entered the base of his skull, indicating an execution-style shooting. Police believed the killer shot Buck from a distance the first two times, and then once he was down, the murderer approached him and delivered the last five shots at point-blank range. The medical examiner said that six of the seven shots produced fatal wounds. Any one of them would have killed Hoffine's. The murderer wanted to be certain he or she finished the job. The murder of Buck Hoffines looked like an execution, and troopers wondered who Hoffines' enemies were. They found nothing in Hoffines' background to suggest he was involved in organized crime or a local gang. In desperation, they studied airline passenger manifests and found a taxicab driver, who had suddenly and unexpectedly left town the night of the murder. They checked with the driver's dispatcher and learned he'd reported a breakdown and was out of service for 90 minutes near the Hoffines trailer when the troopers believe Hoffines died. The authorities knew no reason why the taxi driver would want to murder Hoffines, but they found his movements curious and wanted to locate and question him. While the troopers took a closer look at the cab driver, Trooper Claude Schwackhammer received an anonymous call. The caller said, Ask Steve Carlin about his twenty two automatic and who had it on the Friday night that Buck Hoffines was killed. Investigators followed the tip and questioned Steve Carlin. Carlin acknowledged he had a twenty two automatic pistol and said he'd loaned it to Dennis Anthony on the day of the shooting. Anthony told him he planned to go hunting and needed the gun to shoot rabbits. The troopers knew Dennis Ray Anthony. He was a harmonica player who had recently served six years for the armed robbery of an Anchorage Safeway store. Carlin told the troopers the 22 was fully loaded with a nine-round clip when he loaned it to Anthony but when Anthony returned the gun around midnight on January 21st, the clip held only two cartridges. Anthony told Carlin he did not go rabbit hunting, but instead took his girlfriend to a movie. Anthony asked Carlin to do him a favor, if the authorities questioned him for any reason, and tell them he borrowed a rifle instead of the handgun. Carlin relinquished the handgun to the troopers, and they sent it to the FBI laboratory for analysis. They had a good lead, but they knew it would take weeks for the FBI to determine if Carlin's twenty two was the murder weapon. If it was the murder weapon, why did Dennis Anthony kill Buck Hoffines? Let me take a short break. I have exciting news. Any day now, my fifth novel, Massacre at Bear Creek Lodge, will be released. And for my podcast listeners, I have the first sneak peek or sneak listen. This is the audio for my trailer. Nothing is more terrifying than a serial killer in the wilderness. Three thousand huge brown bears roam Kodiak Island. These are the largest brown bears on the planet, but in the dense woods, you might not see one until your eyes meet his as he watches you from behind a tree. Kodiak bears can be vicious, but they are not the most dangerous inhabitants of the island. Someone brutally murdered eight people at Bear Creek Lodge in the middle of nowhere. Why? And who could have done it? Who could have hated the lodge owners Bob and Jules Bartlett enough to hack them to death with an axe? These are the questions facing Alaska State Trooper Dan Patterson. It doesn't take him long to learn the Bartlett's two adult children had motives and opportunity to commit the murders. The mysterious hermit, who lives a few miles away, might also be the killer. Or is the monster a stranger who is still hiding in the forest? And why were the camp cook and camp helper left alive? Things get complicated quickly. Just as Patterson is following the clues, the killer strikes again, this time killing one of Patterson's prime suspects. Each time Patterson picks up a lead, new evidence shifts the course of the investigation. Who is the killer? And will he or she strike again? You'll know the answer to these questions right along with Alaska State Trooper Dan Patterson in Massacre at Bear Creek Lodge. Massacre at Bear Creek Lodge is already available at Amazon and will soon be available at all online booksellers. The troopers now turned their attention to the young widow. Did she hire Dennis Ray Anthony to murder her husband of less than a month? Verna Hoffines worked as an exotic dancer and frequented the downtown Fairbanks bars where Anthony worked as a musician. She and Anthony likely crossed paths in their lines of work, and Verna probably knew about his criminal background. Was Verna the link between Dennis Ray Anthony and her husband? The FBI laboratory confirmed that the twenty-two caliber Colt automatic confiscated from Steve Carlin was the murder weapon, so the troopers arrested both Dennis Ray Anthony Thirty and Verna Hoffines. Except for the handgun, the authorities had little evidence to prove their case. Anthony admitted to borrowing the gun from Carlin, but said he spent the night in question at the movies with his girlfriend and several of his friends who would back up his alibi. In a preliminary hearing, the state described the murder scene and the results of the autopsy. Authorities found Buck Hoffines face down on the floor beside the sofa in his rented apartment. The nearby coffee table lay on its side. The troopers speculated that Huffines was sitting or reclining on the couch when he was murdered. The killer shot him on the right side of the chest, on the left forehead, and five times at the right base of the skull. In addition to the bullet wounds, the medical examiner found scratches on his body and old human bite marks on the left shoulder, back, and posterior. The state presented compelling evidence suggesting Verna had the opportunity and motive to kill her husband. Perhaps Anthony only provided her with the weapon, and she committed the murder. Verna admitted that she left the flame room for a short stretch on the night of the murder. From their evidence, the troopers believed the murder occurred sometime between 8 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., and Verna said she left the flame room at 8.10 p.m. and returned at 9.17 p.m. She said she went home because the manager of the flame room asked her to fill in for a sick dancer, and she needed to tell her husband she would be working late. The manager of the flame room said Verna was lying. She was not filling in for another dancer on the night of Buck Hoffine's murder. Instead, the manager insisted Verna approached him and asked if she could dance that night. She said she would work for free and he wouldn't have to pay her. The state also presented evidence that Verna threatened to shoot her husband with his .357 pistol earlier on the day of his death. According to Buck's friend, Leslie Avery, Buck gave the gun to him and asked him to hold it so his wife couldn't get her hands on it. Another friend said Buck had scratches on his face and body, and Hoffine said his wife had threatened to kill him. The joint trial for Dennis Ray Anthony and Verna Hoffine's began on June 16, 1972. Both defendants faced first-degree murder charges. Anthony reportedly told Verna to keep her mouth shut, and they would be fine. They both had alibis for the time of the murder, but the alibis had holes in them. At least one of Anthony's friends said Anthony left the movie theater for a period on the night of the murder, and Verna admitted she went home for a few minutes on the night someone killed her husband. Still, Anthony and his attorney felt the prosecution had a weak case against the pair. Spectators packed the courtroom on the opening day of the trial. Before the proceedings began, Verna's lawyer, announced that Verna would like to change her plea. Dead silence followed as observers and Dennis Anthony and his attorney watched in shock. The judge asked Verna how she wished to plead, and she said, Guilty, Your Honor. When Verna took the stand, she told the jury she'd made a mistake marrying Buck Fiennes. She said their marriage was terrible from the beginning, and he was jealous and abusive. He did not want her to work as an exotic dancer, but his army pay was insufficient to support the couple. Verna said she'd known Dennis Ray Anthony for about six months, And a few days before her husband's murder, she approached Anthony and asked him if he knew anyone who could do a particular job for her. He said he did and asked her what kind of job she wanted. She told him it wasn't a pleasant job. She said, I want to be a widow. Anthony asked Verna how much she would pay to have her husband killed, and she said she didn't presently have any money. But soon, she would have $5,000. Since Buck had a $10,000 life insurance policy, she planned to pay the killer once she collected the insurance. Anthony told Verna he did know someone who could do the job and asked her when she wanted it done. She told him, the sooner, the better. He said the job would be done before the weekend and asked when she would pay. She confirmed that she would pay as soon as she received the life insurance settlement. Verna then described her husband and gave Anthony the directions to her home. Verna testified that on January 21st at 5.30 p.m., Dennis Anthony knocked on her front door. Verna was waiting for her husband to return home from work, and the sudden arrival of Anthony alarmed her. Anthony asked her where her husband was and why was she home. She told him her husband should be home from work soon, so Anthony would need to return later. Verna left soon after her husband arrived home. She said she returned home at 8.34 to check on her baby and tell her husband she would be out late. She said Buck was asleep on the couch when she arrived. He awoke and they had a brief conversation. According to Verna, their marriage was rocky and they fought often. She said the day before the murder, she and Buck had a nasty fight. Buck tore off her nightgown and twisted her arm so hard she was afraid it would break. Then he punched her in the body a couple of times. Verna said she stayed home no more than five minutes and then returned to the flame room, where she danced from 9 p.m. until 2.30 a.m., Around midnight, Dennis Ray Anthony arrived at the flame room and told her the job was done, and she was a widow. Verna said she returned to dancing after Anthony gave her the news. Verna said she arrived home around 3 a.m. and found her husband on the floor surrounded by a pool of blood. She then ran to her neighbor's house to summon help. When the defense counsel cross-examined Verna, he asked her why she changed her plea to guilty. Verna said she had several reasons. She said she was mad at her husband and didn't think she fully comprehended what she was doing when she asked Anthony to kill him. Verna blamed Anthony for agreeing so easily to the murder, and she believed Anthony should go to jail for so readily killing another human being. The defense asked her if the state had promised her less jail time if she agreed to testify against Anthony. And she admitted that the prosecutor said if she cooperated, he would recommend she serve only six years. The trial for Dennis Ray Anthony continued... But his attorney could not undo the damage caused by Verna's testimony. After deliberating 10 hours, the jury returned a guilty verdict against Anthony. The judge sentenced him to life in prison. As he promised he would do in exchange for her testimony, the prosecutor recommended a sentence of six years for Verna Hoffeins. Superior Court Judge Everett Hepp considered the recommendation. But after reviewing the pre-sentence report from the corrections officials and the psychiatric report of Verna, he proceeded to sentence her to 20 years in prison for contracting the murder of her husband. Anthony appealed his conviction, and the Superior Court overruled the conviction on a technicality. The judge ordered a second trial for Anthony and moved it to Anchorage. On Friday, October 11, 1974, a jury again found him guilty of first-degree murder. One day after his second conviction, on Saturday, October 12, 1974, Dennis Ray Anthony escaped from the Eagle River Correctional Center near Anchorage. Other inmates helped boost him over the 14-foot-high chain-link fence enclosing the exercise yard and prison officials believe someone must have helped him climb a second 14-foot perimeter fence. Anthony walked away from the prison, headed straight for the home of a corrections officer he detested, raped the man's wife, stole some clothing, and drove off in the family car. Anthony headed north toward Fairbanks, and a state trooper stopped him near Talkeetna. Anthony abandoned the car and hurried into the woods on foot. Four inches of snow covered the ground, with more accumulating all the time, and Dennis Ray Anthony wore only tennis shoes. Twenty state troopers employed a tracking dog and an airplane to search the woods near Taquitna. They also patrolled the train tracks near the highway to ensure Anthony did not attempt to jump a train. Despite the cold weather and the snow, Anthony managed to remain hidden for three days until Tuesday, October 15th, when troopers found him in an abandoned hunting cabin. They returned him to the Eagle River Correctional Center. Anthony spent several years incarcerated outside of Alaska, but returned to the state in 1988, and was imprisoned in the Maximum Security Spring Creek Correctional Institute near Seward. He died from cancer two years later. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my patrons for your support. I appreciate it. If any of you would like to watch the short trailer from my new novel, it's available on the page with my show notes on my podcast website. Just scroll down past the sources for this episode. I will be back soon with another episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.